Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Mehrazan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by James Wright, President Emeritus of Dartmouth College. President Wright joined Dartmouth first as a professor of history in 1969, later serving as a dean of the social sciences and dean of the faculty, and eventually as a 16th president of Dartmouth College from 1988 to 2009. In addition to being a historian and an active member of the Dartmouth community, President Wright has worked to advance opportunity for veterans in the United States in education and ignite conversations on the complex relationships between conflict, culture in America, socioeconomics, the military, and service. He joined the Marine Corps in 1957 at the age of 17 and has been working closely with veterans since 2005 to encourage them to continue pursuing education. He's also worked with multiple senators on what became the Yellow Ribbon Program, a means of partnership between private universities and the Department of Veterans Affairs. President Wright, we're excited to have you with us on the podcast. I'm delighted to join you. Yeah, so um, starting off with kind of your remarks at um, our the Rockefeller Center public program, um, where you kind of spoke on, you know, where, where you saw um, how you where you saw kind of service kind of evolving over time, and 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 how the history of the military can kind of teach us about, you know, um, how our country is doing service today. Um, where where do you see the future of military service going, or service in general um, in our country, um, and how how do you see this tie into our modern understanding and relationship with you know war and and conflict? Yeah, I think that the military has become uh, smaller, obviously, and and not simply smaller, but as as a result of that, also a much uh, smaller percentage of the population uh, serve today. Uh, It's probably about a half of 1% or something like that. And they're not fully representative of the country. They tend to be more rural than urban. Uh, they tend to be more southern or western uh, than they do coastal or northeastern. And uh, I think that uh, most Americans already know anyone uh, who is serving. And and I think that's uh, uh, perhaps inevitable in some regards, but I think it also has uh, consequences. If you don't know people who are serving, uh, it may be easier to get into or to tolerate war because you're not worrying about it as directly and personally yourself. And so I do worry about that. And then, as, as I said in my comments on, on Veterans Day, uh, the nature of war has changed so dramatically, certainly over my lifetime, that uh, many people don't quite understand what it is that we're asking these young men and women to do when we send them off to a potential combat zone. So I do worry about this. I don't know where it's going to go in the future. I don't see anything that's going to dramatically change uh, this pattern. And that's uh, that's very troubling. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess there, I think it seems like there's a, a debate around, you know, where the source of this disconnect might be. Um, I think some people kind of say that, um, or at least what I've kind of heard from other um, kind of speeches and, and lectures on this is that, you know, there's an argument that people um, need to just feel a greater need of, you know, civic duty and and kind of feel this greater sense of connection to, you know, the, the work of a military um, and, and there's, a, there's a, a sort of need for, you know, young people to suddenly, you know, uh, kind of 
get it's their obligation or to, to to feel this kind of you know connection um uh, do you think that there's anything the military can be doing to instead decrease the sense of dissociation young people have with service well it's a, it's, it's a good question i think uh perhaps i think it's limited what they can do they 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 certainly can reach out more they can explain more but you know because the military is so able to meet its its quotas uh, uh, by recruiting where the recruits are, uh, they're not as visible. Uh, the the bases, the military bases that used to be in New England and the Northeast uh, are no longer there. If they are, they're in most cases not so consequential anymore. So we don't see the military nearby. And uh, it's just, uh, it's harder to, to put a lot of resources into recruiting and say New England, if you know that you're, you're not going to get much of a much of a response to that. Uh, as somebody once quipped to me, uh, I could spend a week with a recruiter driving to each of the New England states and uh, certainly uh, recruit uh, some, some young people to serve, but I could get as many uh, by setting up a table in, uh, over lunch hour uh, in some place in Mississippi or Texas. And, and that's just a fact of life today. Do you think that that kind of, you know, that there are some ways to to recruit that are more efficient than others can have either positive or negative effects on, you know, the the eventual work that these these service people do? I I think the military could could perhaps more aggressively and actively try to recruit in some of these other places. But uh, it's it's not. It's not quite the military who have failed uh, as much as it's the rest of the country who has failed. And 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 I have I say this with some some uh, uh, qualms. I've uh, always been supportive of people from Dartmouth and elsewhere who enlist to join the military, but I've never considered myself a recruiter. I've never once encouraged somebody. If they ask me about it, I'll tell them about it, but I've never said to somebody, you should uh, uh, join uh, join the Army, young lady. You'd do very well. That's just not my role, and it's just a very personal decision that people have to make. No, no, that makes that definitely that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, are there other institutions, either you know, large, more largely the federal government, or you know, other other parts of our society that can also address this kind of disconnect? You think? Well, I I, I think what's what we've seen a, a, an erosion of, and, and maybe uh, even even a, more than an erosion over the last several years, uh, is this sense of civic responsibility and civic culture that uh, each of us has a responsibility to other citizens and to the well-being uh, of the republic and 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 uh, you know the the john kennedy uh, uh asked not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country uh let's face it we're not hearing many politicians say similar things uh, today uh i think it's become more of a self-centered uh, I government uh, people see government in a more self-centered way. What's it going to provide for me? And if it's not going to provide what I want, then I don't like government. And, and there's nothing wrong with pressing government to come up with policies that are that, that you find supportive and important. But finally, government has responsibility to the well-being of the entire uh, republic of to the common good. And I think we have to remember that. So yes, I think we could do. 
a better job encouraging people to to meet a, some sort of civic duty or civic responsibility. Uh, we can encourage them to to sign up more to. Uh, to volunteer to work with government or NGOs uh, to uh, try to make a difference, whether it's teaching or working uh, in, in areas where there's a great deal of poverty uh, or working on conservation matters. There, there are plenty of things that could be done, and uh, we might find ways to take better advantage uh, of what I do think is on the part of your generation, a, a willingness to step up and try to help out. It may not be through joining the army, but it could well be by uh, signing up and uh, and taking on some assignment for a year. Uh, but I don't think we've figured out a good way to encourage that. I think it has to be encouraged. I think there have to be uh, carrots rather than sticks. The idea of compelling everyone to do that, I think, would be disastrous. I don't know how we'd ever figure out what it is we're going to ask several million people to do a year and how we're going to monitor how well it's done. But we surely could find ways for more and more young people to be involved. No, that's an excellent point. Um, does, does some of the does these trends that you've been describing also, you know, depend on the wars that we've been a part of, or you know, what we traditionally have been viewing as you know conflict, um, and and how have have those changed over time in ways that have you know reflected this shift in in service in our country? Yeah, I, I was born in 1939. My father was in World War II, and I my I have some early memories of that, and I have more memories of the. Korean War, which I followed in the newspaper, and then I, I joined the Marines in 1957 with four friends at age 17, uh, because we uh, thought going into the service was part of uh, our uh, culture, our life in small town Midwest, and uh, so uh, I went in. But the the nature of war, as I understood it then, and my training in the Marine Corps in the 1950s was uh, really uh, to be prepared to fight another major battle, such as Mark World War II, to be prepared to land once more in a place like Iwo Jima or Okinawa or, or, or Normandy. And uh, I think what we started to see, certainly during the, the war in Vietnam, was a change in this. Most of the uh, most of the fighting in Vietnam was very small unit uh, patrols, ambushes of patrols, uh, and these patrols often had, you know, a platoon of 35 or 40 people or a squad of a dozen in them. Uh, there just weren't the huge, and they generally were over in five minutes or, or, or less, just a very quick a firefight because the uh, North Vietnamese and the and the uh, the, the 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 Viet Cong uh, were not looking for an extended fight where Americans could bring in more air power, so they're very quick engagements, and that's what's that's what's marked the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan even more, marching over the same ground time after time after time. It's not to try to liberate and hold a place as much as it is to encounter the enemy and uh, and uh, kill some enemy to show them that they're not going to uh, prevail. We've, we've called it a war on terror, but you know, terror doesn't wear a uniform. Terror doesn't put an army in the field. Uh, terror is a, uh, a, a, a sometimes very frightening ideology that's cultivated in, in cells and and uh, out of the way places and uh, 
they uh, are more likely to send out a suicide bomber and, and less likely to send an army out. That uh, So, uh, you know, having a war on terror is not something that, uh, that, that in the first instance is going to require a major military presence. Uh, fighting terror and the influence of terrorism and of terrorists requires uh, much more than some sort of military force. It really requires uh, what they called in Vietnam, uh, sometimes dismissed cynically, the, the effort to win hearts and minds of people. We didn't do a very, a very good job with that in much of Vietnam, and it's not clear that we did a very good job in Afghanistan or Iraq either, but you've got to win over the people, and you don't win them over by sending in armies of occupation. Mm -hmm. That's that's an excellent point, and and based on that, you know, like you mentioned that our our military has grown and changed in terms of our physical power and capabilities, Um, and there's this kind of, you know, sense of cohesion or strategy that's kind of on the other hand, been missing over time in the cases of, you know, Vietnam potentially and arguably potentially in Afghanistan. Um, how do you think that that has a relation to, you know, this this shift in in, in changing views on on how on service in this country? Do you think those two things are related? Related to what? I'm sorry, Shadi. Yeah, yeah. The like the you think the the you know this inability to kind of you know win the hearts and minds is connected to. Um, in some way to, to the, our, the changing views in our country and of service? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, and if so, which is the independent, which is the dependent variable? Because I think it can go both ways. Uh, I, I do think, uh, you know, we have to recognize that people who are serving today are volunteers. Uh, they're, they're, they're not facing a draft. They're not facing a conscription. Uh, they have volunteered and, 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 and they want to serve. Uh, why are there fewer of them? Uh, I, I expect because fewer people want to serve in the military today. And, and, and to the extent that the nature of the wars that we're fighting is a factor in, uh, in, in leading people to say, I'm not sure that's what I want to do. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen good studies that would, uh, that would uh, test that and confirm it. But uh, I do think that yeah, the, the changing nature, the change of changing visibility of, of warfare, we don't have front page accounts of what happened, uh, what the battle was yesterday, if a battle in Afghanistan or if it was in Vietnam 50 years ago is a small skirmish that lasts five five minutes and uh, there, there are a couple of casualties, it's not likely to make the front page of a newspaper. There's not likely to have been a, a journalist uh, there covering it because they can't cover every patrol that goes out. And so uh, it becomes less visible. And I do worry uh, that people too often think of war today as, as being sort of uh, some sort of uh, video games with drones uh, carrying on on the war. And they, they talk casually about uh, uh, boots on the ground as if uh, it's shoe leather that's fighting uh, the war rather than uh, our young sons and daughters uh, who are wearing those, that shoe leather and is out fighting the war. And I, I just think there's been an abstracting of it and we don't uh, we don't quite understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and kind of, I guess, 
based on that point, what do you hope um, that people who have not served maybe take away from the work that you've done to um, kind of empower veterans as well as the service of veterans themselves um, when when they do reflect on on Veterans Day um, today and every day? I think the key is just to people have to know better who it is that, that is serving and, and they've got to know better what it is that we've asked them to do. And I think we sometimes forget that. We may uh, say we have no accountability here, but we do. Uh, if, uh, if, if our government uh, uh, decides to deploy uh, several thousand troops to Kandahar province in Afghanistan, uh, our government is acting on our behalf, presumably. And so they are doing this at our behalf. They're, they're going there and they're serving on our behalf. And we have to recognize that they're doing that. I think we have to be grateful uh, to them uh, for that. And, and we have to try to know better who they are. I think that when, when, when the, the casualties of war are casualties that are borne by communities and areas and families that are far distant from the daily life of most of us, we don't quite put the human face on this. And so a, a news story that uh, two soldiers were killed in, a, in an ambush in Afghanistan yesterday, people look at that and they think, oh, that's terrible, but uh, maybe they should know better who these two faces are, what uh, uh, what it is these two faces, this young man, this young woman that were part of this patrol, what it is, who they were, where they came from, what they hope to do. I think as soon as you start putting more of a human face on war, uh, it becomes more real. And, and I think it's too easy uh, to... Uh, uh, tolerate, if you like, for 20 years a war if, uh, if, you, if you don't have a human face on those people who are engaged in that war on our behalf. And I think we just have to do a better job of understanding that. I don't have any uh, quick and easy way for people to do that by any means, but uh, I think that's what's dramatically missing in World War II. Uh, you know, you'd go down the street and you'd see the blue star and even the gold star hanging in the window. And if, if, uh, if a young man uh, from your hometown was killed in Normandy uh, or in uh, the, uh, the, the Battle of the Bulge, people knew about that and they knew who it was. And they said, did you hear about Tommy and what happened to him? And damn, isn't this terrible? And, and, and the same was true in many regards for Vietnam. Uh, it was certainly a wider cross-section of the country. It was more of a blue-collar part of the population that was serving, but it certainly geographically, it was a wider part of the country, and, and people did know who it was. Oh, my goodness, uh, isn't that terrible what what uh, happened? Uh, we, we have to you know, take a casserole down to the family. We have to reach out. We have to help them, and there's just... Uh, We've lost that. Now, part of that is, is is not just nostalgia for an older and a simpler and a smaller town America, but it, it, it is a recognition that, uh, that, that, that we still have to find ways to be a community and to know each other and to try to be supportive of each other. Absolutely. And on that excellent note, I think we'll end today. I want to thank you, President Wright, not just um, for your service and for your work, but for being here with us today. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you.
This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.